Hey, entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web host. And that's where Hostgator comes in. Hostgator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, Hostgator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash Hostgator today and let your online journey begin. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back. What are we looking at today? Well, before we even get into this, I wanted to make an announcement um, it's a sad announcement, and Eric doesn't even know about it. I have no idea what this is. Nope. So I'm going to make a sad announcement and break everybody's hearts. Okay. Uh, I'm taking December off. Why are you taking December off? Because I feel like it. Okay. So if, if Eric wants to run repeats for December, he can, but I am taking it off. He's going on a sabbatical. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So there might be there might be some reruns. Uh, for those two weeks in December, um, but I will not, you know, but but we'll still do Patreon. Okay. Because we can't hose those guys. <laughs> we can't hose those guys. So if you want to pay your two bucks to get to get the two Patreon episodes, uh, definitely do that because I'm not going to, I'm not going to screw them out of those two episodes. But, but no, I've got a, I've got another book on contract and I thought, you know, not that it takes like a long time to put these episodes together, but it does take a little time. And if I can have some uh, extra writing time, I'm going to take some extra writing time. So are you uh, is are you coming towards the end of the contract in December? Is that the reason for no, the December uh, time? No, the end of the contract is actually in March. But just figured, you know, it's a it's a good it's a good month to take off because. Nobody, nobody wants to listen to podcasts anyways because they're all busy getting with Christmassy crap anyway. Yeah. So yeah, so. I mean, you know better than I do, but isn't that like a low numbers month? I really, to be honest with you, I don't pay that close attention to numbers. So yeah. I find I find it's a I podcast. Di- I, I did like when we started, and now I haven't looked in forever. Yeah, yeah I find like it, as a podcaster, it's best just to ignore that stuff. So, okay. so yeah. I don't know if anybody's ever listening to us or, or if we're just yeah. talking to each other, but I'm good with just talking I'm to each other. On the rare event, I see the numbers. The numbers are good, so thank you, everybody, <laughs> for, for the good numbers, but... But yeah, I, I, if it if it drops two percent, listeners drop two percent from one episode to the next. I don't care, <laughs> like that's fine. So a moment of silence for Gavin's month long vacation. Yep, yep. Okay, now on to on to the subject at hand. The subject at hand. So we are back to uh, Frank Belstrey's tax problems. Ooh, we're we're going to pick part, the, part two of part this, two. Huh? We're going to pick that up. There was an earlier episode that was his tax problems, 1960 to 1961. This would be 62 to 63. If you want to, if you want to pause this now, go back and listen to that one. Refresh yourself. Uh, by all means, you know, do so. I'm going to try to put things in context uh, for this episode, so you shouldn't have to do that, but. You know, doesn't hurt. Cool. I like tax. I like tax uh, conspiracy. So yeah, and actually, these notes are really short. I expected that this was going to be long, and it's not. So might be kind of a quick one today. 
But you're doing a recap of what happened in the first episode, right? Because I really don't remember either. Well, I don't I don't really have a recap in front of me. Other than that, this is like this will be an ongoing thing. Like at least as early as nineteen sixty, if not earlier, the state and the federal tax authorities are looking into Frank for basically falsifying numbers, um, not paying full taxes on things he should. And some of this, I mean, give him the benefit of the doubt because he is working in largely cash businesses Mm -hmm. like restaurants and nightclubs and coin-operated devices and things like that. You know, not that that's not illegal because it's still technically illegal, but as anybody who's ever, like, worked as a waiter or waitress knows – like, you don't there, actually there, report that. There's a lot of abuse there, and it's very easy to abuse, so it just kind of happens yeah. na- natively. Yeah. And, and I would imagine, too, when we're we're talking, you're thinking about this stuff from the perspective of our era. And I got to imagine back in the 60s, it was even worse because it was probably even easier to do it. Oh, it probably was. You know, I'm. that's just my guess. I, I don't know that. I don't have hard evidence of that, but... That seems to make sense to me. I don't, yeah, and I don't know either, but I would agree because now with how much is run through credit and debit credit and debit cards, you know, the vast majority of purchases probably, the numbers are known. Mm-hmm. Like you can't really fudge that. Right. And, and the government is not worried about the amount of cash transactions that are getting abused because it's probably so minute because so much of everything that's purchased is done through credit cards. So yeah. So again, not that it's not illegal because it is, but but if if you're fudging your numbers on cash uh, businesses, like it's like yes, that is the how the mob makes a lot of its money, but like they're not the only people doing it. So now you you said you don't really have a recap of what happened in the previous episode, but can you at least kick us off with? Has he been arrested or anything at this point in time? No, he's basically he just, just he under just be, ongoing investigation, investigation and okay. they've they've called people in for questioning. He knows that he's being investigated. Okay. Uh, so they call in Jenny Aliotto in January 1962, who is both uh, his girlfriend and his wife's cousin. So that's, you know, that's fun. <laughs> and they knew that she was involved somehow. And she testified that, Yes, she did occasionally keep some records um, at her house, some tax records, some financial records at her home to work on for Frank. She specifically said she had Hotel Roosevelt records and the pub records, two businesses which at this point by the early 60s um, were not even active businesses anymore. So maybe she used those examples to be like, they're not current. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Shortly after that, Frank had a hearing to try to prevent the IRS agents from probing his pre-1958 finances. He said, you know, there's statutes of limitations. Uh, you should probably not be able to go back and look at that. Uh, so he's like, you know, some of the things that that would include are both the Hotel Roosevelt and the pub, as well as the Badger State Boxing Club that he used to be a manager for. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, these are pre-statute of limitations you shouldn't even be able to look at those mm-hmm. uh, so you try to stop them that didn't that didn't go so well for him i'm cu- curious can you share why that didn't go so well for him because i feel like that's pretty open shut like they can't touch you if it's after five years or whatever i think that's what the statute of limitations on on text stuff is yeah i mean 
I'll, I'll be more clear on there's there's a part that's going to come up where it'll be more clear about that. But basically, what they're not going to be able to actually charge him with anything for what they see. But, they but they're establishing a pattern of okay of what okay. he's doing. Gotcha. Um, being like, this isn't just something that you've just started doing. This is you've been purposely <laughs> doing your papers wrong for a long time. IRS agent Jackson, I don't even know his first name, Agent Jackson, <laughs> reported the FBI his findings from examining records of Marvin Topper, who was Frank Belstreet's accountant. Um, Marvin Topper, so far as I know. Perfectly legitimate accountant. I don't know anything good or bad about him other than just he's an accountant. The name Mary Oida was signed on documents for the pub going back to 1956. But when Oida was questioned, she said she didn't sign anything, had no interest in the pub, and had never even been in there. (laughs) Oida was employed at the First Wisconsin National Bank and was another cousin of Frank's wife. She did not know who signed her name and said she never had business dealings with Frank of any kind. Other names on the business records included Ben Barwick, who was the secretary of Badger State Boxing, Bob Bundy, who was the secretary of the Hotel Roosevelt, Joe Maniachi, Joe Dentis, Ed Meisner, who was the father of Milwaukee police detective, John Alexander, Steve DiMaggio, and Rudy Porchetta. Um, so some of those names don't really matter, but... Just kind of like the people who are involved in like his business dealings here. And it does sound like like a lot of them make sense to me. But like, yeah, the, the one girl, like, what is her name doing on there? Especially since she didn't even, she claims she didn't even know her name was on there. Yeah. It's just a weird thing. Yeah, it's weird. So the IRS agent, uh, like, talked to her. She denied knowing Peter Balistrieri, Frank's brother. She denied knowing Buster Balistrieri. She said Joe Dentiste she knew because he was married to another cousin who was a sister of Frank's <laughs> wife. Uh, she denied knowing Ed Meisner, John Alexander, or Stephen DiMaggio. She knew nothing of the pub, the Tradewinds, Gallagher's. She offered multiple signature samples to show the names in the documents were not were not hers. The signatures weren't even like Ooh. didn't even look like her signature. <laughs> Her name was also on a 1956 check for $150 from the pub that was purchasing bamboo to be installed. And she's like, that doesn't match my name either. (laughs) So somebody had been signing her name on checks and other documents that she didn't know. So now, have you seen this in other scenarios with the mafia to to give an explanation of why they would put this person's name on there? Is it just to kind of give the company some legitimacy or something? I don't know what the motivation is here because this this last one in particular, this check to buy bamboo to remodel the place, like there's no reason to lie about that <laughs> check. Like the check is not in question. There's not a fake. You're check. legitimately buying bamboo to remodel a yeah. place. It's like why do we need to fraudulently sign a name to this? So but- I don't know. I mean, it's very common to have you know what they call a front man to have like somebody whose name is on things that looks legitimate. That looks Makes legitimate, it- and, right? But generally speaking, that person knows that they're that the they're, front, front man. <laughs> that they're the front man. You know, they they know that. They don't really have to do that much, but they're still going to get paid because their name's on things, Mm -hmm. you know. So uh, I don't know why they would involve somebody who had no idea she was involved. Like at that point, you just make up a name or something. (laughs) Like I don't know what their what the point of this was. 
There was clearly some thought, but I don't know what it is. All right, so, uh, so Frank had filed his motion to have the IRS not investigate beyond the three-year statute of limitations. This motion was rejected because elements of fraud were apparent in his tax returns going back farther. The judge said there was probable cause that Bowstry was filing false and fraudulent returns at least as far back as 1955. Bowstry claimed an income between $5,100 and $9,900 each year, which doesn't sound like very much to begin with, but I mm-hmm. mean, keep in mind the inflation on that. But, but either way, fairly low amounts. Well, at the same time, he swore in banking paperwork that he was making between 15000 and 16500 each year um, in order that he could get loans, better loans. There was like a two to three times increase on what he was telling the banks he made. <laughs> and what he actually made. Yeah, compared to what he was well, telling well, the IRS he yeah, made. Yeah, what he tells the IRS he made. So was he lying to the bank or the IRS? But either way... <laughs> Um, the judge is like, well, clearly there's some some number in here, some pro- number problems, and I I don't want to do this. Like, this is something I absolutely do not want to do on this podcast, but I'm going to do it. Okay. Um, this is very much the exact same thing the former president is on trial for <laughs> as we're recording this. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is him telling. Some people that he's worth such and such and telling other people that he's worth three times as much so that when he's buying and selling real estate and getting loans, he can get more money. Yeah. You know, that's in progress. So it's all (laughs) alleged and whatever. Like, I'm not I'm not saying anything one way or the other about that. But that is basically what they're claiming that that he's been doing the former president's been doing for a very long time. So before you get mad at Frank Balistrieri for doing it, yeah. just remember. <laughs> it's, it's He's a, not the only one. <laughs> it's apparently a thing. Uh, a man named Alex Guizdala appeared before the IRS in response to a subpoena and discussed his dealings with Frank Balistrieri. Uh, Guizdala had formerly been an official of the Hotel Roosevelt and was now the manager of a bar and grill at the Royal Hotel. Guizdala and Oscar Brockman had been had the lease on the Royal Hotel restaurant in their names. In fact, they might have had this. They might have had the hotel restaurant in the Royal Hotel before they even worked at the Hotel Roosevelt. This might have happened at the same time. It's going to get weird if I go into. Just, just ignore that. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, the Hotel Roosevelt, the one that they were investigating, um, had been owned by Phil Valley. And Bob Bundy, who was a known frontman for Felix Eldericio. Frank Balistrieri was president of the Hotel Roosevelt, and Bundy was secretary treasurer. Guizdala joined as vice president around 1947. According to him, he knew these other guys only casually because they were regular visitors of a coffee shop that he had hung out at since 1940. Guizdala was under the impression that he would manage a restaurant in the hotel but when that did not materialize a year later, he withdrew his money from the corporation. Regarding the current investigation, the IRS got the impression that he wanted to help, but he was afraid of possible consequences. They asked him to return a few weeks later. How they knew what Guizdala had said to the IRS is unknown, but Balistrieri and Ben Barwick were unhappy with what Guizdala had apparently said and made the point to see him before he returned to speak to the IRS again. 
Um, so let me let me re re say this. So Frank Balestri was involved in the Hotel Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Along with him were Phil Valley and Bob Bundy, who we know are mob guys. Right. For a while, possibly as as little as a year, this Alex Guizdala guy also had a financial stake in it. He does not seem to have any mob connections whatsoever, and his involvement is sort of just like a fluke. Okay. But that also now makes him the guy the IRS wants to really drill down on during their investigations because he's the good guy. You know, like you had had worked with these guys for a year. You were financially involved with them, but we know you're not a mob guy. So we want you to tell us everything. Okay, okay. So you're saying that not when you, I thought when you said like work with them, you meant like, like this is the guy they're going to go after. But no, no, they're no, no. trying to leverage him to get him to let out the secrets about the other people. Right. Basically. Okay. Right. Um, which now then has Frank and these other guys kind of scared about what he'll say because he has no incentive to lie to the IRS. Like mm-hmm. he's he's a legit businessman. But you would think he's got to know who he's involved with. Oh, he right? definitely so, knows. So, so I mean, there's going to be a little bit of hesitation there. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's still it is weird to me, like why he was involved in the first place. But it, but it seems he's completely legit. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Frank had been speaking with Ben Barwick about Guzdala, and they were concerned that Guzdala was going to say something to the IRS that would not only hurt them, but also implicate Phil Valley, who had been involved in the Hotel Roosevelt and was a big uh, union guy. Bellastri told Guzdala to plead the fifth if he was called to testify, but he didn't. Apparently, Guzdala even said that he hadn't put any money of his own into the Hotel Roosevelt, when they actually had records saying that he clearly had invested $5,000 into it. <laughs> so, Guzdala is now, he could plead the fifth and just not testify at all. He could tell the truth, um, which would probably hurt the mob. But he's he's going like the other way. He's been like, oh, I don't know these guys. I wasn't involved. But there's records saying he, he was. <laughs> so <laughs> so he's he's not helping them or himself now. The IRS interviewed Guizdala again, and Guizdala said that Balistrieri had not threatened him as far as how to testify. He again denied any financial interest in the Hotel Roosevelt, and he also denied that Phil Valley had any financial interest in his current business in the Royal Hotel, um, where Guizdala had the lease. An informant said that Alex Guizdala had told Ben Barwick the names of the IRS agents who had interrogated him. Barwick and Frank Bellastri met up after and were concerned that things Guizdala said could implicate Phil Valley in some way. I kind of just said that, but Mm -hmm. this is an ongoing concern. An informant was present during a lengthy conversation between Frank Bellastri and his attorney, Eugene Coonan. Based on the information provided, I'm fairly confident that the informant here was a hidden microphone. Okay. (laughs) Because the... The information was pretty thorough. <laughs> Bellastri told Coonan that he had not seen Guizdala in eight or nine years, and then Guizdala called him out of the blue when the subpoena came down. Bellastri said that he told Guizdala to take the fifth, or otherwise, if you're going to talk, tell the truth. Instead, Guizdala allegedly made up a story that he had no financial involvement in the Hotel Roosevelt and had no stock when, in fact, he did. 
Balistrieri and Coonan spoke about the Melody Lane records, it's another business he had, that the IRS was trying to locate. Frank said his brother Pete had picked up the records from an accountant named Jenkins, and Jenkins was told that he didn't have to remember about the records if the IRS asked him anything. <laughs> Coonan asked how Balistrieri would record any payments from Melody Lane, which Balistrieri owned but always claimed he didn't to get around jukebox licensing laws. He said he would report it the same as next year, whatever that means. <laughs> Balistrieri said if he was called before the federal grand jury looking into gambling, he would have Dominic Frenzy say that he wasn't available due to an illness. The FBI noted that Balistrieri was not expected to be called to the federal grand jury looking into gambling and that they would pass on the Melody Lane information to the IRS, suitably disguised so that the IRS wouldn't know what the source was. Um, so basically, I'm fairly confident that a microphone was in a room that these guys were meeting in. Mm-hmm. And so anything said here is presumed to be honest. Uh, and, and basically, yeah, if I get called to testify, I'm going to be sick. And if and if they ask about these records, we don't know where these records are. Like, there's not he's not like admitting to murders or anything on here, but it's it's very well, clear, clear that <laughs> that, the, that the record keeping is not uh, on the up and up here. Yeah, <laughs> and it's very clear that they're probably trying to hide something. Yeah. Know? In the beginning of this episode, we were talking about Jenny Aliotto, who is the girlfriend as well as the cousin of Frank's wife, mm-hmm. and she kept some of the records in her apartment. Right. Well, unbeknownst to her or Frank, the FBI had been renting the apartment across the hall from her. I think, it, did you mention this before in another it was probably episode? It was probably in the previous a, okay. tax thing. <clears throat> So in June 1962, they removed their equipment from that apartment across the hall. They've decided that whatever they're going to get out of there, they've got out of there, and they're going to pack up and, and leave. They turn over whatever it is that they found over to investigating authorities, and a search warrant was issued and executed on September 26, 1962, by Ernest Johannes, a special agent of the Intelligence Division of the IRS, along with special agents of the FBI. A big raid mm-hmm. on this apartment. Which and is, this is Jenny's apartment. Yes. Okay. Which is apartment 406 at 1609 North Prospect Avenue in Milwaukee, <laughs> if anybody wants to check out this apartment. <clears throat> is it still there? It is very much still it's a, there. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So this was it was occupied by Jenny Aliotto under her alias of Loretta Fisher. <laughs> Great fake name, mm-hmm. Laura Fisher. The apartment superintendent had actually said, yeah, you guys are, are good to come in. You don't have to break down any doors or anything. Uh, you've shown me the paperwork. Everything looks great. So he lets them in. Actually keeps it kind of low key, which is nice. Because <laughs> you know, it doesn't look great when you got a bunch of agents swarming your apartment complex, mm-hmm. I would imagine. But anyway, so they got in there and... It didn't actually look like an apartment so much. Like, there wasn't food. There wasn't anything that really implied that anybody was staying there, like, on a regular basis. But there were a lot of filing cabinets. (laughs) So they came in and they scooped up records for the Hotel Roosevelt, the pub, a company called Ben K, the Tower Tavern, Melody Lane, the Bonfire, the Badger State Boxing Club, 
and even some of Frank's personal tax records. According to the Milwaukee Journal, the IRS seized a, quote, truckload of records from the Alioto apartment, including several records that the Bellstory brothers had previously testified were destroyed in a fire. <laughs> Uh-oh. The truckload was apparently four filing cabinets and two boxes of various records for six taverns, an amusement device company, a construction company, and a meat market. The U.S. attorney said, We intend to check the seized records against the testimony that we currently have to determine whether perjury was involved. We also want to determine whether the Bellstreets violated federal laws by failing to comply with a summons to turn over these records seized. I, I, I wouldn't they have definitely violated that law because they <laughs> they said the records were destroyed. <laughs> uh, they would definitely have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like that, I don't think that's a question of whether they did. But Yeah, when they say we don't have those records and then the records turn up, I mean, at Frank Balistrieri's girlfriend's house of all places, too. Like, pretty much, I mean, guilt is there. Yeah. And this actually kind of brings us to the end of this part. And this is this is quite a, quite a twist here. Okay. Of course, what you do when this happens, uh, if you're somebody who has really good attorneys, you file motions to try to stop this from happening, mm-hmm. right? Which, of course, is what they did. And by motions, I'm guessing they're trying to say that the records were caught, obtained illegally or something like Precisely. that. Precisely. Something Precisely. Um, they filed a motion saying that the search warrant was a bad search warrant. They shouldn't have been able to issue it. Um, it took a few months to get through the courts, but then in April 1963... Federal Judge Kenneth Grubb made the following decision. The warrant issued regarding the property in Jenny Aliota's apartment was not valid because it lacks sufficiency of designation of the objects of the search and seizure, which, to my understanding, means when they filled out the search warrant, they didn't list everything on there they were specifically looking for. Okay. The search and seizure conducted pursuant to the invalid warrant was therefore illegal and the objects obtained thereby must be returned. So <laughs> right here, they've got them. Yeah. They, they they've got nailed them. These these records that you said didn't exist, they exist. We've got we've got several filing cabinets of these records that you couldn't find because they were in someone else's apartment. We now have them, but Thanks to, to the power them. of good attorneys, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the judge says, nope. You don't have them. You got to give it back and pretend you never saw any of it. <laughs> wow. So this could have been the end if they would have just listed something on the freaking search warrant. Yes. Because I assume if as long as you list something on the search warrant, even if you go in and find something that isn't listed on the search warrant, it's still valid, I would think. Yeah. And I don't know, you know. I haven't seen the search warrant. I don't know what they wrote on there. Like, they knew what they were looking for. So I don't know if they were just, like, vague about it, if they just wrote, like, tax records or mm. whatever they wrote. But apparently the judge decided against them. And and this is Judge uh, Kenneth Grubb. Like, this isn't like this guy's a friend of the mob. Like, this guy has ruled against them on many mm-hmm. occasions. So, like, this is not a corrupt judge. He's... Just whatever happened here, 
they didn't do a very thorough job with the paperwork, I guess. So yeah, and if, I mean, if you think about it, if this guy is not a ju- friend friendly judge to the mafia, I mean, more than likely he's fully aware of who Frank Balistrieri is and oh, wants to see him go down. He's a hundred percent aware. Yeah. So they must have really mucked up this paperwork yeah. for him to say you got to give it back. Yeah. Because you know, otherwise he would have. He's going to side way on the side of the law enforcement as opposed to the Frank Balistrieri, unless I guess he, maybe he was threatened or something. Like no, that, I don't but. think so. But but yeah. So this. So I'm going to pause it here because this is like a good a good pause because now like they had him. Nope, reversed. <laughs> and this this story is so bizarre because. We know they're looking into him, his tax issues as early as 1960. From looking at things, they know that he's been doing things incorrectly, at least since 55. We're now up to 1963. He's, Frank, is now kind of like on the winning side of this fight Mm -hmm. because the thing that they had against him, they now don't have. Yeah, they lost it completely. Yeah, and this is going to go on like... I don't think I'm giving away, but like this, this is a pretty well-known thing. Like he does end up going to prison for tax fraud, but that's not till like 1970. So this ongoing back and forth is going to go on for several more years. Wow. And we're never going to hear the end of this story because it's going to take us forever to get to 1970. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, if you, if you want to say that he started goofing his taxes in 1955 which probably was sooner than that even but we'll say 55 and he ends up finally getting convicted in 1970 that's 15 years they knew he was doing it wrong but couldn't actually nail him for it that's pretty good and the interesting thing is is too they're trying to nail him for it you know like, like there's probably millions of people that don't do their taxes right but the government isn't trying to nail them for it. In this guy, they're directly trying to get him, and they just can't. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't... He is probably not the worst offender. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I don't know how many people the IRS um, look into each year for tax issues, you know. But I'm guessing he is not the worst of the worst. But because he's got that name, oh, there's definitely a large amount of resources going in this direction. <laughs> like, they are trying. Mm-hmm. So now, would you, I guess, uh, are these companies and things that, that they're looking into for the tax purposes, would you consider that mafia connected? Or is are they just targeting this because they know Frank Balistrieri owns it and they're going after they're just looking for a way to bring him down. You get what I'm saying? I'm not sure, because I don't know where one ends and the other begins. That's sort of the the trick of it. Because are they attacking things he's do mafia-related things he's doing, or are they just attacking his personal business businesses because they know he's a part of the mafia to to bring him down? If I understand your question, I mean... Like are, I, I think they're going after. I don't think they care about the businesses as much as they care about him. So it's the businesses that he owned or was involved in. Right. I but don't the, think it started the other way. Yeah. Like, 
when you look at these businesses, you wouldn't call these mafia-owned businesses. These are Frank Balistrieri-owned businesses who happens to be the mob boss for the mafia. Yes, although, like I said, I'm not really sure what the difference is. Like, it's kind of the same thing. Okay. Because, like, yeah, they are his businesses, but because they are his businesses... They're kind of controlled and yeah, run by the mafia. Like, the people he's going to hire to work there are going to be his mob buddies, and they're they're running the money through them in a questionable way. Um, and that's, like I said early on, like, if you've worked in restaurants and stuff, or, or bars, or any, you know, cash-heavy business, like, what he's doing is not unusual. Mm-hmm. But that is part of the reason that you see so many people in the mafia own bars, restaurants, nightclubs because they're cash-heavy businesses. Like, you know, like everything that goes through them does not have to be taken into account. It should, but it obviously doesn't. Right. So, yeah, like that's not unusual that, that there's a big overlap between those types of businesses and the mob. But at the same time, the vast majority of those businesses that are probably having similar business practices are not mob businesses. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's tough. It's weird. Over the years of doing this, you know, and I've been doing this, I don't know how long now, 12 years, maybe longer. I don't even remember. Probably longer. Well, when you figure, when did the Milwaukee book, the original Milwaukee Mafia book come out? The original Milwaukee Mafia book came out in 2012. So that's 11 years plus however long it took took to put that together. together. So, yeah. Um, Plus, you were probably dabbling in this long before that as well. Yeah, but it's like it's it is weird, like how I've come around. Like I've my point of view has changed so much in the last 10 years from being like, oh, the mob, bad guys, bust the bad guys. You know, I mean, it wasn't that simple, but kind of that that angle. And now, like. I still feel that way to a point because it's not cool to go out and like hijack people <laughs> and like murder. Like that's not cool. But a lot of the stuff that they actually end up getting in a lot of trouble for isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's tax fraud, it's gambling, it's things like that. And it's no worse than what a lot of other people do. Right. So like the things that they actually end up getting prison time for is like the stupidest things. And they get in trouble not necessarily because they're the worst offenders, but because they have names and they can't get in trouble for the things that they should be getting in trouble for. Kind of like you look at it from the perspective of Frank Balistrieri went to prison for tax fraud. Mm -hmm. But yet, at some point in time, he probably ordered somebody to be killed. Oh, yeah, (laughs) certainly. And, and, And... Never got anything for that, which just seems really counterintuitive. Yeah, you pretty much, if you're in the mob and you killed a guy or you ordered a guy killed, you're not going to prison for it. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to happen. They almost never solve mob murders. So you got to get them for the other stuff. And But it's funny because, like, on on an individual basis, like, if you ignore what the name of the person on trial is, it's not necessarily what they're doing is the most terrible thing in the world. And and that's kind of a shame because when I so so I'll be on I I've gone on this long binge of watching this TV show called American Greed. Have you ever heard of this? I've heard of it, but I've I've not seen it. It's like it, they just cover a different like Ponzi scheme or some sort of scam that was run in the United States in each episode. Yeah, 
But it it shocks me when they talk about the sentences these people get. Because these people are stealing millions and millions and millions of dollars from people and they get like six years of prison time. Yeah. So it's 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 a shame. I don't know. You've probably said how long Frank Balistrieri actually went to prison. It's but not I, long. I, yeah. It's it's two years or less. Yeah, yeah. So like they're, they're going after him for these complex things that, that you really, for some reason, don't get any prison time for, which is a shame to me for one thing. Yeah. And two... It just seems like a very inefficient way to do it. Go solve the murders because you can then throw them in jail for a very yeah, long time. Right. Well, oh, and 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 these are two different things. I mean, like what Frank was doing and like what most mob guys do, they're fudging the numbers and they're hurting the IRS. And you can make a case. You can be like, well, that's that's money that should go to taxes and the taxes fund schools and they do you could, if you want to, you could try to make these big, you know, <laughs> lofty arguments. But basically, nobody's getting hurt by what these guys are doing. Now, what you're talking about with the Ponzi schemes, people are getting hurt. That's legit. Yeah. That's legit. <laughs> I mean, if you've got a million a million dollars to invest in something like, I don't typically feel that bad for you. But I've heard enough stories where people don't have money to burn and they're, they, then they think like oh this is a good use of my life savings and they're screwed yep they put 10 they put the only ten thousand dollars they have on you know into something and then this guy's over there buying yachts and crap like that yeah. while while this person is losing you know has just given up everything they had for the rest of their life yeah. you know and it's it's a shame and you're very t- right on that but um but i'm gonna go on a on a limb and say that the mafia did some pretty twisted stuff that oh, probably no. screwed individuals over just as oh, bad. Oh, they, to- they totally, yeah. they totally so. do, but it's just, for this, the purpose of this episode, <clears throat> I mean, what, what he's doing here, as far as they can tell, is fudging the numbers on a few thousand dollars, you know, on some businesses. And again, you know, just for inflation, it's more than a few thousand dollars today, but it's a relatively piddly amount violent. because by the time they finally get him, they probably spent more investigating him than they <laughs> actually got him for. So it's. But at least they got him off the street for two years, right? Yeah. So it's it is so. weird. Like the more that I start like looking at things and and not being like, oh, we got to bust the mob guys, and just looking at these things like instance by instance and being like. Was this really the best use of resources? <laughs> like, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's not the worst part of the resources because back to the gambling guy that we did the episode on and they followed him around for years yeah. and found absolutely nothing. So, so, but all right. Well, do you got anything else to add? How, how long are we looking? Cause now do we jump? When will the next segment of this part come up? Is it going to be? Well, it'll probably do sixty four, sixty five next, and so. So it's probably going to be just the same amount of time, right? That, probably be a while again. Yeah. So. But yeah, we're firmly in sixty three now. We'll probably be in sixty four soon. I think the pace might start picking up a little, a little bit, bit now because we most of the episodes aren't like one year or one month. Like I'm, I'm trying to cover like broader ranges. Mm-hmm. So the timeline isn't perfect, but but yeah, we should be moving ahead at this point. Very cool. 
All right, then. Well, with that, we'll wrap this episode up. Again, we thank everybody for tuning in. We do have a Patreon. You can check that out at patreon.com slash Milwaukee Mafia, or you can go to MilwaukeeMafia.com and find that. And Gavin, where can people contact you? They can email MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. I do get emails. I got a very nice email just this past weekend. So Very cool. Yeah, from from an employee of a publisher I used to work with. I no longer work with them. I still get I still get royalty checks, which is nice. <laughs> but I no longer work with them and it was really nice they reached out and said that they could tell that we were doing really well and and the things had taken off and I was cool. That was really very nice cool. of you to to reach out. And it's very cool that did they so did they find the podcast? Is that what the email was referencing? I don't think it was the podcast specifically, but they had found the website the and website. they were they were pretty happy with what they saw. Oh, very cool. All right, and then with that, we'll be back next week with a Patreon episode in two weeks with a regular Mafia episode. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.